Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Closing in on Improved Quality of Life for Patients with Eosinophilic Esophagitis by Diagnosing Promptly and Understanding Type 2 Inflammation. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi. Hello, my name is Dr. Iko Hirano, and I am a professor of medicine and gastroenterologist at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. It's a pleasure to be here today. We're going to be discussing unmet needs for the diagnosis and treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE. Eosinophilic esophagitis was first described in 1993 and 1994 by Dr. Stephen Atwood and Dr. Alex Strauman. Over the past three decades, there's been a dramatic rise in both the incidence and prevalence of eosinophilic esophagitis around the globe. The predominant reports have come from the United States and Western Europe, as well as Australia. Despite the fact that EOE was described over 30 years ago, there remains a significant delay from symptom onset toward diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis. This study done by the group at University of North Carolina demonstrated a five-year delay from symptom onset to diagnosis from 2000-2006 and an over seven-year delay between 2012 and 2014. So in spite of the fact that we've all come to recognize the features of eosinophilic esophagitis, there remains a significant delay from the time of symptom onset. Reasons for diagnostic delay include the fact that patients may not always present to their physician complaining of the symptoms of eosinophilic esophagitis. In addition, some of the symptoms may be confused with other diagnoses, such as gastroesophageal reflux disease. And the third point is that many times the symptoms when they start are very mild and not particularly troublesome to a patient. Over time, as the symptoms progress, a patient will present to their clinician or even to an emergency room with a food impaction. Highlighting this last point, here we're looking at the natural history of eosinophilic esophagitis progressing from an inflammatory disease to a disease that includes inflammation and fibrocenosis over time. Over time, there's progressive laminopropia or subepithelial fibrosis that leads to collagen deposition in the laminopropia, which we can detect endoscopically by their modeling characteristics that include ring formation and stricture formation. To summarize, recognition of EOE has increased dramatically over the past 30 years, but there continue to be significant diagnostic delays. In the next session, let's discuss the underlying pathophysiology of EOE. The pathogenesis of eosinophilic esophagitis is multifactorial. Genetic studies have identified a key role for specific genes, particularly TSLP. TSLP is thymic stromal lymphopoietin, which is a cytokine expressed by epithelial cells involved in the pathogenesis of Th2 immune diseases, including asthma and atopic dermatitis. Inflammatory and tissue remodeling factors include not only the eosinophil, but also mast cells and activated lymphocytes. A role for impaired barrier function has been identified that allows for swallowed and ingested allergens to penetrate through the epithelial barrier. Barrier. A role for gastroesophageal reflux can be identified, as well as an important role for aeroallergens and swallowed food allergens. Microorganisms have been implicated in the pathogenesis of a number of autoimmune and allergic conditions in the so-called hygiene hypothesis. 
Looking more closely at the pathogenesis of eosinophilic esophagitis, we see here food allergens as well as environmental allergens activating an immune response involving Th2 cells as well as eosinophils and mast cells. Some of the key cytokine mediators include IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13, as well as TGF-beta. The net result of this inflammatory cascade are effects on the esophageal end organ, including subepithelial remodeling, loss of barrier function, and perpetuation of eosinophilic inflammation. If we look at the therapeutic options for eosinophilic esophagitis, we can see how they play a role in the pathogenesis. Dietary therapies remove the allergens, particularly the dietary allergens that activate disease. Specific targeted therapies are looking at monoclonal antibodies directed against IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. And PPI therapy is seeking to improve barrier dysfunction in eosinophilic esophagitis. The translational studies have helped us identify specific targets for Th2 inflammation in eosinophilic esophagitis, identifying treatment options. This includes dipilumab, which is a monoclonal antibody directed against IL-4 receptor alpha that inhibits signaling of not only IL-4, but also IL-13. The positive phase 3 results for dipilumab have led to the FDA approval of dipilumab as the first therapeutic option that's been approved for biosinophilic esophagitis. We see here the therapeutic options being studied in ongoing phase 2-3 trials. Sindacumab is a monoclonal antibody directed against IL-13. Lirantelumab is a monoclonal antibody directed against Siglic-8. Benralizumab, a monoclonal antibody directed against IL-5 receptor. And Etrosimod is an S1P receptor modulator being studied in ongoing phase 2 clinical trial. In summary, the pathogenesis of EOE is complex and primarily driven by an abnormal immune response to ingested food allergens. Therapeutics in development are targeting specific aspects of this immune response. In the next session, let's discuss the clinical presentation of eosinophilic esophagitis. Looking at the signs and symptoms of EOE, it's important to recognize that they vary between children and adults. Infants and younger children present commonly with reflux-like symptoms, nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, and even food refusal and failure to thrive. Adolescents and adults, on the other hand, present predominantly with symptoms of dysphagia and food impaction. Less commonly, with non-cardiac chest pain and even reflux-like symptoms, including heartburn or regurgitation. The diagnostic algorithm for the diagnosis of EOE has been simplified. If you have a patient that presents with symptoms and signs of eosinophilic esophagitis, the recommendation is to proceed with an upper endoscopy with biopsy. On biopsies, we're looking for a peak esophageal eosinophil count of 15 or greater eosinophils per high-power field. Once you have the symptom and histologic criteria, it's important to take a step back and evaluate for non-EOE causes of esophageal eosinophilia. Once you've done that, you can go on to a diagnosis of EOE. Secondary causes of esophageal eosinophilia are listed here. This is a long and exhaustive list, and most of these secondary causes can be ruled out by looking at the patient's past medical history or review of the patient's clinical presentation. Perhaps one exception to this would be gastroesophageal reflux disease. As noted earlier, children can present with reflux-like symptoms quite commonly in their initial presentation of EOE. In adults, the distinction between GERD and EOE is much easier. GERD patients are presenting with symptoms of heartburn, regurgitation, where EOE patients are presenting with dominant symptoms of dysphagia 
and food impaction. Endoscopically, the features of GERD can include non-erosive reflux disease or esophageal erosions, which EOE patients present with endoscopic features of edema, rings, furrows, and exudates. To summarize, the diagnosis of EOE requires clinical symptoms of esophageal dysfunction combined with esophageal eosinophilia in the absence of secondary causes. In the next session, let's discuss screening and diagnostic recommendations for EOE. Several factors prompt me to screen a patient for EOE. The primary one are symptoms of dysphagia. EOE is a leading cause of dysphagia around the world. Other factors that increase the likelihood of EOE include age, male gender, and the presence of concomitant atopic disease. Patients with EOE have a much higher prevalence of allergic rhinitis, atopic dermatitis, IgE-mediated food allergy, and asthma compared to the general population prevalence. Endoscopy plays a critical role in the diagnosis of EOE. Of course, we need to obtain an esophageal biopsy in order to make a diagnosis, but in addition, endoscopic features of EOE are present in the vast majority of patients, both children and adults with EOE. The endoscopic features include edema or loss of vascular markings, rings, also known as tracheolization of the esophagus, furrows, which are vertical lines up and down the esophageal wall, and exudates of the esophagus, white plaques. In addition, strictures can be identified. It's important that the management of EOE incorporate a multidisciplinary approach. Primary care providers play a key role in identifying symptoms and signs that are suggestive of EOE and referring patients for diagnostic evaluation by a gastroenterologist. Allergists play a key role not only in the management of eosinophilic esophagitis, but also managing the atopic comorbidities that most patients have. Dermatologists may be involved by recognizing patients that have atopic dermatitis who also have concomitant esophageal symptoms. Ear, nose, and throat physicians can identify patients that have allergic rhinitis, but also ENT physicians are often seeing patients that have dysphagia and throat symptoms that may be manifestations of EOE. Emergency room doctors or physicians also are involved in the care of EOE, particularly for patients that have food impactions. In addition, pathologists play an important role in the identification of EOE by examining esophageal, gastric, and duodenal biopsies for the presence of eosinophilic inflammation. To summarize, EOE can be found in patients of all ages, but are much more likely in younger male patients with atopic disease, most of whom have endoscopic features of this disease. In the next session, we're going to hear from one of my patients, Matt, and hear about his diagnostic journey and how EOE has affected his quality of life. Hi, my name is Matt. I'm 41 years old. I was diagnosed with EOE in my early 30s. I can remember back to probably 13, 14 years old, having trouble eating certain things. One of the most vibrant memories of EOE that I can recall is my parents coming to college, going to a nice restaurant, having steak, but thinking that I swallowed a bone, having to go to the emergency room, them not finding a bone. So my symptoms before being diagnosed were inability to swallow most meats, anything that was dry, anything that was large. So I was basically limited to things that were soft, could be chewed down to something very small, I had to chew very slowly. It progressively got worse. There was a point in time where I had difficulty swallowing liquid, and I'd seen doctors every year. And at some point, I'd actually switched doctors to a specialist in asthma and almost immediately pointed me to Dr. Ferrano and said, there's a doctor that specializes in this, and you should go talk to him. And it was one of those moments where you actually realize that it might be something that's real, something that's specific. 
So the first time I met Dr. Verano, he put a piece of paper in front of me that was a series of foods asking me which ones I eat and which ones cause me problems. And the funny thing is the entire list of foods I didn't eat anymore, not intentionally. Rice, ground beef, apples. Shortly thereafter, I had my first dilation, which was the first time that I could eat, drink, and do other things in a way that I hadn't been able to do in probably 10 years. So pretty game-changing. So in addition to dilation, also began with different steroids. Unfortunately, with steroids, the way that you take them currently, they would affect my vocal cords. So not a terribly great option. And I haven't been able to take pills for a very long time. So when the antiacids became available in a dissolvable pill, between those antiacids and dilations, I've been in a pretty good spot for quite some time. But COVID hit, didn't get dilations. Unfortunately, my throat narrowed back to a position where eating again was becoming challenging. So the ongoing challenge, I eat slowly. I don't eat certain things. You can imagine being at a business dinner and starting to choke, having to go to the bathroom to throw up. It's been a part of my life for 25 years. So you learn to live with it, but excited for treatments becoming available and what they might mean in terms of not having to get upper endoscopies at some regular interval and just living a normal life. Thank you for listening please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.